Welcome back to Refocus with Lindsay Gensel. What you're listening to today, it's a little bit different than the podcast episodes we've shared with you before. This episode, This Person's Story, is a part of Refocus Together, a special series the team at ADHD Online and I have been working on for ADHD Awareness Month. Every day throughout the month of October, we'll be sharing a different person's ADHD story, which is fitting because the theme for ADHD Awareness Month this year is understanding a shared experience. And I can't think of a better way to really get a sense of that shared experience than by telling a different story every single day. To be clear, yes, that is 31 stories in 31 days. Did I mention I'm a bit of an overachiever? My name is Lindsay Gensel, and along with the team at ADHD Online, I am so excited to present Refocus Together, a collection of stories aimed at raising awareness on just how complex ADHD is and the different ways it shows up in people's lives. When we share stories, it's easier to find the perspective, ideas, and tips that help us live our best lives. I'm interviewing people with varying backgrounds, diagnoses, experiences, and perspectives. We'll hear from working parents, advocates, engineers, writers, PhD candidates, and more to learn that while we may be different, we are all united by our own ADHD journeys. After college, Emily Chen struggled to adjust to life without the structure of school. She was dealing with newfound anxiety and a mildly annoying habit of only wanting to watch YouTube videos on her couch. She started seeing a therapist who mentioned that people with ADHD often struggle with sleep and daily tasks, and at some point, Emily reluctantly looked into the symptoms. And there it was. The root cause of all the stress and chaos she had been dealing with for years came to light. As she learned more about her diagnosis, Emily discovered significant awareness gaps in the Asian American community's understanding that ADHD even existed, and in the ADHD community's understanding that Asian American identity and values can create barriers to getting proper support. Emily has made it her goal to speak up about her experience as an Asian American with ADHD, to bridge the gaps and help others like herself. She hosts a YouTube series called Disorient on Asian American mental health and neurodiversity and writes and speaks on these topics as well. I am so excited to introduce you to Emily Chen. I'm so excited to bring Emily into the conversation. Emily, thank you so much for sharing your time and your story with us as we work to increase awareness for ADHD Awareness Month. Yeah, I'm super excited. So let's start at the beginning and go back to your own ADHD diagnosis story and where it started and what kind of put the little, you know, inklings in your brain that maybe this was something that was going on with you. Yeah. I'll start with where it did not start. So my friend in college, um, as a sophomore, she was on her own ADHD journey and sent me, I think, this New York Times article about like ADHD and women. Um, and I looked at him like, oh, like that must really suck. Like, wow, I can't imagine. And just completely went over my head. Did not register. Went through all of college, not even 
nothing just did not register at all so um college was a mess um very disorganized um running around like super frazzled all that stuff not a cool time um and so was not on my radar um and then i graduated college in 2018 and um you know i think losing the structure of school and like having a schedule where i had to like be places um that didn't work out so well. I ended up watching YouTube videos on the sofa. Like it was really hard for me to do anything. Um, you know, even just like grocery shopping and like making food for myself and leaving the house. So um, that was not cool. And so I was taking singing lessons and there was one lesson where I just showed up and you know, I, I was teaching piano lessons at the time and I just started crying in my lesson and my voice teacher is just like, oh, goodness gracious, like, you think maybe you should go to therapy? Um, and I'm like, yes, I will go to therapy. So I found a therapist and I'm very lucky in that my therapist really quickly caught on to the fact that um, had some executive dysfunction going on. And so a couple of sessions in, she also discovered that my sleep hygiene was abysmal. And so I spent that session being like, wait, so you're not supposed to like read in bed for long periods of time and bedtimes are real? Really? They're, they're not fake? So that was, that was a shocker. Um, but during the session, um, just in passing, she said, oh, you know, people with ADHD often have sleep problems. And, you know, I just completely ignored that. That didn't even like register in my brain. So I got in the car to go home because this is pre-COVID and was just like, la, da, da, da. I was like, wait, why did my therapist say that? And then so I, you know, get home, like Google search ADHD on my phone, like probably landed on like attitude magazines, like symptom list or something. And was just like, went, went down the list and just like, Nah, no, nah, nah, nah. I try so hard to, nah, mm -mm. nope, not me. Um, so, nope, didn't register then either. And then later that week, I had another voice lesson. And during this voice lesson, my voice teacher was like, I know you understand what I'm telling you to do. I know you're, under you're understanding it, but like you seem to be having a lot of trouble like actually doing it. And then that just clicked. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you know, knowing what you're supposed to do and not being able to do it, um, which is classic ADHD, which I didn't know back then, but, um, you know, I know, but I'm having trouble doing. Um, that clicked because that was the exact same thing my piano professor told me in college. And then, so then I was like, oh my gosh, it's not the instrument. It's, it's me. Because it's like the same thing was happening on two different instruments, voice and piano. And I'm like, oh, God, it's me. So then I got home, went back to the ADHD symptom list. I'm like, OK, Emily, like, be honest with yourself. Like, you know, even if it was embarrassing, whatever, went down like, oh, my gosh, is that why I like lost my plan or my backpack for like a whole month um, in college? Is that why I like lost my my earphones like? blah, blah, blah. Is this why I was always late to class or like why I forgot this and blah, blah, blah. And like, blah, blah, blah. like, oh my gosh. And just all these moments, I think I just really tried so hard to like leave behind me and ignore and just try work harder to not do. So that was like, oh gosh, like 
is this the cause of like the general chaos in my life? Um, and so that was when it registered. And then I was like, okay, like I need to figure out if I have ADHD. And then I started the process of finding a um, clinician to diagnose me. And how was the process to find a clinician? I know you mentioned it was pre-COVID. So yes. we were yeah. living normal lives. Yes. What was that like for you? Oh, gosh. Um, so uh, I think in the grand scheme of things, it was fairly smooth. But the first neuropsychologist that my therapist recommended <laughs> was this like white dude. And, um, and I just... You know, I think I'd just been so overwhelmed growing up just in school in general and stuff that I just couldn't remember anything about my past. And so like that kind of went horribly because for that initial appointment, it basically ended up as, I don't think you have ADHD. I think you just have executive dysfunction. And that just left me a complete wreck because, you know, I was identifying with all the symptoms and stuff and I just really needed to know. And it was just like, oh, I, you know, oh, I don't think so. So I was devastated. And so I did not continue seeing that clinician because that just left me a huge wreck. So I was like, need to see like at least a woman. Um, so my therapist recommended another neuropsychologist, well, a place. Um, and so I did get to see a female neuropsychologist and I was really, really nervous. You know, I was just like, oh God, like do I have ADHD or not? Cause I really just, I'm just like, oh my God, like if I don't have it, then like what is wrong with me? Um, and so I was really nervous through that whole thing, but, um, she did diagnose me with ADHD. I went through the neuropsych testing process at that point. That was much, much better than being told. Oh, also, also because what helped was um, I'd kept journals, you know, as a child and as a teenager, and I still do journal, but I had looked at those after I saw the first neuropsych that I went to see. And then so I like pulled out my literal documented written history. And so I had more proof now as opposed to literally not being able to remember. It's like, look, guys, like I can't remember what happened yesterday. Like, what do you expect me to remember from like elementary school? Um, so that was helpful because I think I just growing up, I did hide a lot of my inner experience. It's really interesting that you kind of got the the redo, you know, like you didn't know you needed to bring your journals or that it would have been helpful. You yeah. just went in because there's really no guidance. And I yeah. do want to go back to the experience you had and just how important it is for everyone who's seeking help, whether it's mental health related or not, that you feel comfortable with oh, yeah. the person you're working with yes. so that you can advocate for yourself. And I want to touch yeah. on that and, and kind of bring that around to your experiences as an Asian American and, mm -hmm. and building this level of comfort with talking yes. about it. But I want to talk first about what you've been doing treatment-wise. You know, it's been mm -hmm. a couple of years. What did you start right away? So you get your diagnosis, you go home, was there anything immediate that jumps out or, you know, what have you kind of added in or, or taken out that's worked? Yeah. I would say that my, you know, my kind of like general comprehensive support system really started when 
it registered that like, oh God, like I might have ADHD. I went into a many months long hyper-focus on like devouring anything and everything I could about ADHD and executive function and emotional dysregulation and all that stuff. Um, just because, you know, I wanted to figure out how I could help myself. And also I just find that stuff really interesting. I was just consuming all of this information and like finding all the strategies I could. And I actually, you know, I think I went with the mindset of, no, I don't have like a formal diagnosis, but let me operate by, you know, I think it is very likely of ADHD. If I use these strategies, like it's, you know, the worst thing that could happen is the strategy doesn't work and I don't use it. So I was playing around with strategies even in the months before I got my diagnosis because that process can take a couple months at least. And so what I started off with, um, in addition to being in therapy and seeing my therapist who, you know, does understand ADHD was just actually started, you know, in my most immediate surroundings, like my room. Um, so I would say I did like a major overhaul of my room. Everything's open so I can see it because if I don't see it, like I'll forget and it basically doesn't exist in my mind. You know, I don't have any like your typical chairs. Like I'm sitting on a piano bench right now. Oh, I use sticky tack, like the blue sticky tack to like just anchor things. That way I don't knock things over as much because <laughs> so just kind of like those like environmental, like and how I organize things um, just so that I can feel more comfortable in my own space. I don't have to worry about like, you know, knocking things over or losing things. I mean, I'll lose things, but at least it'll be somewhere in here and I'll probably see it as opposed to like, it's like in a drawer, like hidden away somewhere. I'll find it in like five years. And I think that really helped just like establishing that sense of, you know, my space is good for me. And then once I did get my diagnosis, I started on medication. I'm on Concerta right now. And so at that point, actually, I had already um, made a lot of changes in my room. I had like tightened up my sleep hygiene. I do have a bedtime now. They do exist. Like, wow, like amazing, miracle. Yeah, it's wow, they exist and melatonin works for me. And so actually, like I had things, I had a lot of strategies in place even before I started um, on medication. And so that first time I took Concerta, it was just like, it was just like the static just like quieted. I'm like, oh my God, there's peace in this world. I was like, oh my gosh. Like I thought, I thought peace was fake. I thought calm was fake. And I'm like, oh my gosh. It, no, it's just my, my brain is super ADHD. Um, I don't remember what the actual original question was, but so I'm starting school and, you know, school had been so stressful for me. And this time around, um, I have accommodations in place. And so that is just the level of relief that that gives me. It's just, I mean, I, I never would have imagined it, that, you know, oh my gosh, it's like possible to feel okay, maybe in school settings. So yeah, I, it, there's so much worth in if you can find medications that work, like, wow, they can really make a difference, but also like just non-medication strategies for your environment or like, you know, oh my gosh, like accountability buddies, body doubles work like a charm. 
I just like testing and seeing what works and what sticks. So I love the fact that before you were even diagnosed, you were like, I am changing everything. I love that. I am working on that. It's a slow, slow process. Yeah. Mostly because of like emotional attachment. I have to, mm-hmm. I have to get out of my own way. But I do like the fact that you're just like, yep, nope, I'm going home. Gonna yep. reset this. Yeah. Let's talk about the relationship that you have with being an Asian American. Mm -hmm. uh, You mentioned your second generation. And one of the reasons why I was so excited about doing so many different conversations for the month of October, I mean, it's 31 days. It gives us the opportunity to talk to people outside of our own bubbles. And there are lots of white men and white women in this <laughs> space. And yes. I imagine when you started looking online, when your you know therapist had kind of dangled the ADHD worm in front of you, <laughs> yep. I have to imagine that there weren't a lot of people who looked like you or who live a life like you who were talking about it. Nope. Nope. I mean, I'm really good at finding stuff via Google searches. And even with my very intense Google dives, I couldn't find anybody really. Like maybe there was like a not that detailed article here or there, but there was no one with like, it just didn't exist. It didn't exist. Like even on something as basic as anxiety and depression, like even just basic mental health knowledge, like that wasn't really out there either. So I was just like, you know, all of this information I was taking in, I had to filter through like, okay, like here's the information, but like, does this change? Do I need to tweak it given, you know, you know, my like Asian American identity and the cultural values and stuff. And so, I mean, I think that was part of why it was so difficult even when I was learning about ADHD and like, you know, mentally, it wasn't in a great space, but it wasn't helped by the fact that I didn't see anybody who looked like me. And so actually, one of the reasons why I have written the articles I've written, why I have my Disorient YouTube um, series on Asian American mental health and neurodiversity is because like, gosh, I think I could have learned about my ADHD and, you know, anxiety and depression so much earlier and connected to it more and maybe registered that like Asian Americans can have ADHD, anxiety and depression um, if in college or maybe even in high school, I'd like, you know, Google searched it and then found something like you know, what I've been making. Um, and I think that would have made a huge difference. And what I don't want is to have other, you know, it's like, okay, I have this idea. I have like, you know, like the tech and I had the time to do it. Like, you know, I think the next generation or just people now can maybe be a little better off in my community now that this is like available online. Because yeah, like, yeah, it's something that does is very apparent to me is that in the ADHD and like neurodivergent communities, um, it is very white dominated. And, you know, and I think it's, I think it's hard if you are not a part of 
you know, a marginalized community to see how how those identities might impact the process of getting diagnosed and treated and getting support and stuff. And so, you know, in like so in that area like it's it's hard, but that's literally for Asian Americans. For for us it's compounded by the fact that in many Asian cultures like like even just talking about your emotions, like don't even talk about mental illness. Like just talking about your emotions is just like nah, no. So like in Chinese culture, like saving face is huge. And so basically, you, you know, you don't want to like bring dishonor on your family. You don't want to disrespect elders and stuff. So I mean, the way I took it was just like, oh, just don't show my feelings and talk about them ever. And like, they still did show because like, I have big feelings, right? But then so I just like, kind of like, like, suppressed as much as I possibly could. And just didn't talk about it. So like, we don't really talk about emotions. And like, in the Asian American communities that I've experienced, even talking about like, basic mental illness things like anxiety and depression. I I know that it's getting better in the pandemic just because, you know, it is so critical in this crazy time to talk about it. But before the pandemic, like, whoo. Um, so like all through high school, I didn't know that Asian Americans could have anxiety or depression. And so in college, when I like pew, crashed, you know, I had to wrestle a lot with like, is how I'm feeling even legit? Do I even deserve help? And I felt so much shame in even going to the counseling center for like my counseling sessions. Like it was this huge weight of just like, you know, nobody was looking. It was like, you know, 9 a.m. on like a Tuesday in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, like no one's looking. But it's just that like such a big stigma against mental illness in the Asian American community. And then on top of that, at least for my parents, my parents are immigrants. Um, I think what often happens is that they're just not aware that things like therapy and, you know, school accommodations and, you know, medication and just care for mental struggles exist. So it, it makes seeking help hugely, hugely difficult. But you did it. But I did it. I mean, <laughs> I think I kind of got pushed to the point where it's just like, okay, like, either I seek help or, I mean, it was, I was in like the throes of depression. Like, it was not good. But I think this happens pretty often where like things get to a crisis point and things are much more severe when Asian Americans are finally pushed to the point of seeking help. And so what I, you know, what I would love to do is to help people become more aware and educated about, you know, what the situation is so that they will seek help earlier and maybe find it more okay. Because, you know, it's so much harder to heal and get well again when, when things have just majorly crashed in your life. I want to ask about the moment you decided to kind of make your story public in a way that you saw as your your attempt at changing what you saw and what you went through and 
working through those feelings of putting something out there that you know there are people in your bubble who are mm -hmm. going to not be supportive. They might yeah. not tell you, but you know that they're kind of out there. What was yeah. it like working through some of those feelings? Um, I mean, I don't think it it actually wasn't terribly hard. First of all, it was the pandemic had started. So it's like, you know, if you if you guys want to give me a hard time, like good luck, because like, you know, you, I mean, <laughs> it's a lot easier to ignore you on, um, you know, via technology. Like you can't just show up at my door because, hey, do you want COVID? Like um, so there's that. I think I do find it easier to do all of this work online. I think I was really lucky in that at the beginning-ish of the pandemic, um, I had connected to some mostly Boston-based Asian-American women who are very passionate about mental health advocacy. And so they were the ones who encouraged me, who brought up the need for like, oh, like our community really needs like basic mental health information and encouraged me to do this. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this idea that had been brewing in my mind for many months, but I just, I was like, I don't like, you know, it was just a dream. I didn't have any, I didn't think I could do it, but I got that encouragement from my community, um, which I think just gave me that, like, gave me that sense of support and that really warm push to be like, hey, I, I think I can do it. You know, I've been reading about this stuff for forever and I think I do know what's going on. I've, I have lived experience with it. So, yeah. And I think also like, you know, I, I do a lot of thinking about this stuff. It's like, I understand why Many Asian Americans, you know, stigmatize mental illness and um, want to save face and um, are so reluctant to seek help. I understand because I was there. I have lived it myself. I have had to work through it. It is so hard. Um, so I don't really have too many hard feelings. Um, you know, I completely understand where it comes from and why it exists and how strong it is. So yeah, I think it's that like, no, I understand where they're coming from, but I have a um, wonderful community that supports what I'm doing. And I think that that is what made the difference for me to feel like, hey, I, I feel like I can contribute in this way. You know, I have, and I had the time and I had the time and like to emotionally and like logistically work out the kinks so that I could make these YouTube videos, right? Because like, I mean, COVID paused everything. I had plenty of time on my hands. But don't discount the fact that one, you're a performer and two, you're brave because anyone who puts something out there that has any vulnerability to it, like you're working through something. Like you're, I, I just don't want you to discount the fact that you just had time because of COVID. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it, it, yeah. you're very strong and you're very, selfless in the sense of you saw what wasn't out there and yeah. you knew that something needed to be done. And, and there are a lot of people who would just go, okay, well, I'll just wait till somebody else comes yeah. around and, and changes yeah. that. So yeah, I just thank you. want to make sure that you know. Like, yeah. yeah. And I think I did it out of necessity too, right? And, and I guess maybe ADHD impatience. Like I just really don't want, you know, others in my community and especially that next generation to you know, hopefully they don't have to go through what I went through. I think it can absolutely be 
um, at least the suffering that I went through, like if they are in a similar situation, I think something like their suffering might be reduced if they know that, you know, someone else has gone through similar things. Um, if they have that knowledge and know that they're not alone. Um, so it really did feel like necessity. It's like, okay, like I didn't get that, but if I can help, you know, not have other people go through that, that's a huge relief to me. And I think making it also as part of my, my healing journey to be like, okay, like. It's kind of like your journals. Like it's just you journaled, but in a very public space. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, um, the disorient stuff is scripted. Otherwise, oh my gosh, how many tangents would I go off on? So it's very scripted um, to give the information in as I think concise and accessible way as possible because I mean, yeah, my other videos on YouTube, I have one where I also COVID, I made a DIY bag pipe out of a trash bag. That is incredible. And that is very ADHD in the middle of COVID. (laughs) I have a lot of questions, but I'm going to stay on the path that we're on. (laughs) I want to ask, when you look back at everything and you can kind of see where ADHD was coming out at different points in life or mm-hmm. where you're struggling with it now, what are some of those kind of negatives? You know, like we hear so many people talk about all the positives to, to, to grasp onto, and I love that. I do. But I also think sometimes it can diminish how hard it is some days yes. to live day yeah. to day when everything is working against you. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of my big issues with ADHD. I think people in general don't understand what it actually is. It is extremely complex. Look, it took me like four months to really feel like I grasp what it is. You know, executive function is really hard to understand. And so I think my biggest issue is that A, people don't understand like kind of like the bigness of ADHD in general. And then therefore, they they trivialize its impact on daily life. Like, I mean, Russell Barkley's research on how untreated ADHD can literally reduce life expectancy. Like, this is serious stuff. And what I wish people could understand more is how serious ADHD is. Like, f- for me my biggest struggles are emotional dysregulation, um, just, you know, big emotions, intense emotions, sudden emotions, um, and just, you know, managing that, especially once the medication wears off at night when I'm tired. And also hyper-focus. I get really hyper-focused on reading and writing, which is great until like I've you know, I'm not going to the bathroom in a timely manner. I'm not feeding myself in a timely manner and I have a headache and um, just generally not taking care of myself. And I'm just so exhausted. Um, So kind of like that, that like stopping a task and taking care of myself. Um, So, so that is very difficult. I am learning now that I am I just literally just did not know how to like prioritize things. It just, I, yeah, I don't know how people do that automatically. I, I, I'm just learning now. So I couldn't even necessarily describe to you what it actually is. Cause it's okay. I'm, I'm, I have over a decade on you. 
in age and I am still to this day, I wake up every morning and I'm like, well, what is the most important thing on my list? And what is actually the most important thing on my list? You know, not the one I want to do. There's always, you know, there's always two lists to go through. Yeah. Um, so I am learning that that I don't know how to prioritize, you know. I didn't really see it before, but now I'm starting to see it. I'm like, oh gosh, wait, what is it? And also I think time blindness, like I don't know what time it is. So it's kind of hard to like manage your time if you don't even know like, you know, how much time is passing or what time it is. So I think, yeah, for for me, those are my main things. And um, I think I think the hard thing is that all of those things were very possible for me to hide growing up. Like, I think I just, you know, just took a bunch of notes and wrote things in my planner. And then so it looked to other people like I was um, organizing my stuff. But actually, I was just really, really frantically writing anything and everything. I've been told that I kind of looked like a headless chicken running around in college. So um, <laughs> that clearly didn't work out too well. Um, I think the hard, the hard thing was that it's, especially as a, you know, growing up as a girl who, you know, had the brains to show people that she understood what was going on. Like it was, it was very possible to hide it. And so I did. And people believed me. And then again, like executive function things are ultimately like invisible. It's behavior. Yeah. I wish, I wish people could recognize how serious ADHD struggles are. Like, yes, yes. There's so many moments where it is funny, but I think that has to, you know, the kind of the amusement of it all um, has to be held with the weight of the seriousness. Because like, you know, for many people, it is a legitimate disability. And I think that's something that people skirt around because of ableism and because it's an invisible disability and because, you know, people trivialize ADHD, but it is a legitimate disability. And that's something that I have really had to wrestle with, especially this past year um, in the process of seeking accommodations. It's like, is this a disability? Like, do I deserve these accommodations? Oh, that word. I know it's so hard though, isn't it? Yeah. And so it's like, okay, like, no, it's, for me, it is a disability. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of starting to own that. And it's been really hard, right? Because it is something that our society is like, you know, we just stay hush hush about it. You don't talk about those sort of things and then just stigmatizes it even more. Well, it's also this idea that we live in a one size fits all environment for everything, yep. for work, for school, for relationships, you know, for eating habits. It's just like these are the rules. This is what was set. Doesn't matter that the people who set them no longer live. You know, they're gonna live on earth, <laughs> yeah. not alive. Yep. They're long gone, but we're sticking to it, you know, like it's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't know. I just, I just personally find like, I've also like done a lot of learning from the disabled community in general. And it's just, I don't know. I just find it really cool. All the different possible ways there are to do things and kind of like universal design. And like, it's, you know, so I find it really cool. I don't see why we have to stick to this one way that doesn't work for so many people. Like, like guys, come on. Like, have some fun. <laughs> but kudos to you for walking yourself through that process and 
finding yourself at the place where you felt comfortable asking for something that you so deserve, you know, like everyone deserves to learn, you know, everyone deserves to find a way that works for them. And I think that that's probably really hard for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, if you want to talk about like ableism and like institutional, like one size fits all, like just talk about like academics and school and stuff like, oh my gosh, I I could go on for days. About that. Our next conversation will be about that. And then this makeshift DIY bagpipe But that. I will okay. Just, yeah. It'll just be yeah. a hodgepodge. Yes. I always like to end with positive because it's exhausting living with ADHD every single day. I also struggle with emotional dysregulation Mm -hmm. and you're kind of like, can I do this my entire life? So I always like to switch things around to the positive. When you look at your life and like what you love about it and what you're passionate about, where does the ADHD fit in? Oh gosh, you don't even have to know me. I mean, you can just look at my YouTubes. Like I love doing so many different things and I think that's pretty classic ADHD. Um, and so I think, you know, my like zest for like wanting to like write cool stuff and like write songs and sing and um, learn about mental health and neurodiversity and communication, the disability community and Asian American identity and like teach and perform and all this stuff. Um, you know, I think having these multiple interests and just being really enthusiastic and excited about it. It's just really cool to know that, hey, I can do all these things. I can like put them together in different ways. And, um, you know, it's also many different ways I can connect to people. You know, like it's nice that I have all of these different skills that, you know, maybe I don't use it. Maybe I do use it. Maybe I will use it down the road. You know, I think it's given me so many rich opportunities in my life um, that, you know, I'm really grateful that I had. And it's it's also nice, like, you know, I'm meeting all these people in grad school and it's really cool to have so many different ways to connect to people. Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, I, I hate being bored, like, like, oh, gosh, like, I just I feel like I'm going to explode when I'm bored. Um, so, but luckily, I have lots of different interests that um, can prevent me from getting too bored. And looking down the line, obviously, grad school top of mind. But like, what is pushing you forward right now? What is on the horizon that you're excited about or that you're considering? You know, like what's down the path that is really kind of getting you out of bed every day? Yeah. I think it really is kind of like that intersection between Asian Americans and the neurodivergent community. You know, I've met some neurodivergent Asian Americans already, and it is so nice to just learn time and time again that I'm not alone. I actually never was alone. Um, We don't have to be alone if we talk about it and connect. Um, So, you know, whether it's in my speech language pathology realm or beyond, like I've been doing this stuff, you know, apart from 
SLP land, um, you know, as a you know, person with this lived experience, as a fellow community member, um, you know, I think just just helping people like me just kind of like just find our voices and like come into ourselves and help us learn that we can be proud of this our Asian American identity and our neurodivergence um, and learn that we have like these things contribute to how we can give to the world. Because I think just having those things to draw on as life experience and, um, you know, wisdom and just like unique experiences, I think it does offer stuff to the world. And it's just really cool to see how things combine and make like beautiful, powerful, and just really valuable things. Yeah. So I'm just really excited to continue, you know, sharing my own story, but seeing like how, how my fellow neurodivergent Asian American peers, um, kind of like come into ourselves. Um, because, you know, I think I'm across the board, like people of all marginalized identities and like combinations and stuff are starting to speak out more. And so it's really cool to see how their presence, our presence can help shift the narrative in like really wonderful ways. You mentioned accommodations for school, but I'm curious when you think of grad school, are there any things you know already you're going to do differently from college now that you know about your ADHD. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's it's cool because I'm like literally in the process of this, right? I think my main thing isn't actually even a formal accommodation. It's just letting people know that I have ADHD, that I care about, you know, ADHD and what it entails, and I'm willing to talk about it. But I really want to be more open about this and let you know how I'm doing. Um and I'm happy to talk more because I think in college, I just, I was so overburdened by, you know, the executive dysfunction, like chaos everywhere. I got to like get to class on time, got to do my homework, do homework, 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 uh, kind of at the expense of everything else that I didn't even have the the bandwidth to let people know that I was feeling like completely frazzled all day, all the time which doesn't really help. Like, how is anybody supposed to give you help if they don't even know that you're not doing great? Um, so I think it's just being open and honest about how I'm doing so that they can help me and support me and giving them that opportunity to do that. Otherwise, you know, otherwise I'll just land in the same place of like feeling alone with everything. And that's that didn't that didn't go well. Well, Emily, it was such a pleasure chatting with you. I got to go back to the bagpipes because it's just like, if I were to paint a picture of the ADHD brain in the pandemic, now I know that there will be bagpipes <laughs> involved because it's just a little yeah. glimpse into sometimes the humorous yeah. chaos that our brains yeah. take us to. Yeah. So. I have a YouTube video of it on okay. my YouTube channel. So if you want to check it out. Oh, I'm um, going to. And I'm going to yeah, link it's, it for everybody. Yeah. Please do. It is. It's pretty fun. It's if I mean, I think we all hopefully you kept your recorders from elementary school because if you have a trash bag and a recorder or two, like fun project, guys. Every parent is gonna be very concerned when <laughs> they they listen to this. <laughs> 
Emily, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for putting yourself out there to help people who, you know, you didn't want them to be in the same situation that you yeah. were in, you know, those few years ago. And so I just thank you because it does matter and increasing the number of people who come forward, it just helps our neurotypical friends understand yes. how complex this is. Yeah. And also how overwhelming it can be. And yes. so I just I yeah. I applaud you for putting yourself out there. And then of course, thank you for sharing it with us for ADHD yeah. Awareness Month. Yeah, thank you for doing this. I'm so excited. So cool this project. Yeah. I mean, if if the bagpipe is your ADHD moment. Planning 31 interviews is definitely <laughs> mine. It's very – it tracks, okay? Like if we're going to go back. Yeah, it'll go great. I'm so excited. Thank you. Best of luck getting started. You're going to do great. Thank you. Big thanks to Emily Chen for sharing her story with us on Refocus Together. You can find all of the work Emily is putting out by visiting emilychenstudio.com. I also have the link shared in the show notes. This project wouldn't be possible without the entire team at ADHD Online, including Zach Booker, Dr. Randall Dutler, Tim Gutwald, Keith Brophy, my teammates Keith Boswell, Suzanne Spruitt, Claudia Gotti, Melanie Mile, Paul Owen, Kirsten Pip, Sissy Yee, Trisha Merchandunny, Lauren Radley, Corey Kearney and Mason Nelly and the team at Dexia, Cameron Sterling and Candace Lefke, Camilla Eden, Lauren Terry, Sarah Gelbard, Phil Rodeman, and Sarah Platinitis. Our theme music was created by Louis Inglis, a songwriter and composer based in Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 39. To find out more about Refocus Together or to share your story with me, head over to ADHDonline.com and check out the ADHD Awareness Month page, which highlights this project as well as each day's episode after they've been released. You can also find out more by following along on social at Lindsay Gensel and at RefocusPod. 